my reservation Spent each dime I could afford Like a child in wild anticipation Long to hear that all aboard takes me back Never thought my heart could be so young Why did I decide to And good evening everybody There's the beautiful music of Les Brown and Doris Day all the way back till November 1944 But we are here on a Saturday night, March the 5th year 2010. I'm Long Jews, and on the other line, my good friend, Patricia. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Walden, and hi, everybody out there. We have, am I allowed to do this now? Yeah, it's on your hand. Oh, this is great. We have a really special guest tonight. We have ventriloquist Jimmy Nelson with us. And he brought a couple of his friends with him, so we'll be talking with all of them. Jimmy, hi. Hi there, Patricia. Nice to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I think it's going to be really exciting for an awful lot of people out there. Jimmy, would you do the signature jingles and uh, give people a, a taste of the memories that we're going to be talking about tonight? Well, I have to get Danny O'Day in, up here and Farfar up here, because they're okay. the ones that did the jingles. Yes, uh, fellas, are you tuned up? Yeah, may I have an A, please? Yeah, Patricia, could you give him an A? Oh, gosh. A-A. <laughs> That's close enough. Oh, oh thank you. Okay. <laughs> da da Danny, you start properly. You do it and see if anybody remembers this from uh, quite a while ago. You ready? Mm, go ahead, Danny. Oh, okay, properly. Um, oh, M-E-S-T-L-E-S. -E Nothing makes the very Well, it's not that I'm so quiet. 
excited, my dear. It's just that uh, my type of humor is a bit passe, don't you see? I, I just don't get jokes anymore. <laughs> Whenever they give the punchline, I laugh five minutes later. Oh, oh. introduction, Jimmy, if you would just give me a couple of minutes um, for our listeners. You are one of the best known and most respected ventriloquists in the world, and that's incontrovertible. Danny, you and I are just going to have to talk on the side a little bit later. Okay. Okay, okay that would be good. Uh, if, I, if I gave an entire overview of all that you have done we would be checking in for a conversation at about 1.30 this morning. So for, for me, just the highlights, you have been a professional ventriloquist since you were 16 years old. That's right. I've been a ventriloquist since I was 10 years old, but yes, right. uh, doing professional shows uh, since 16, that's correct. Since you were 16. Um, in, in 1950, it looks like this was a pretty big year for you, and if I've got my dates correct, right. in 1950, you appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. Yes, I did. Yes, uh, fresh, fresh from Chicago, and uh, my first appearance in New York was on uh, the Ed Sullivan Show. That's right. Remarkable. Also in 1950, you had a local TV show in Chicago called Holland's Happiness House. Right. Where do you get all this information? Oh, that's, I did that's, my homework. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, co that's correct, yes. Uh, of course, the reason it was called Holland's Happiness House is because our sponsor was Holland Jewelers, so naturally we... Uh, put them in the title. Oh, well, then, then that leads into the Texaco Star Theater mm. with Milton Berle. That, according to my notes anyway, was also a 1950 entree for you. Yeah, it was in the early 1950s, yes. Uh, New Year's Day 1952, actually, we started okay. doing, doing that show uh, uh, because the, the original six men, Fitz Stone, uh, left the show and uh, they wanted something different, and they caught my act at the uh, Radio City Music Hall and uh, decided I could do it, and uh, I did it for two years. Wow. I'm going to ask you in just a couple of minutes about how a professional would go about either auditioning or winding up with approval. I mean, having a phone call and actually landing a job is, is uh, a different ball of wax. So I'd really like to talk with you for a couple of minutes about that, but we cannot forget the Nestle Chocolate Quick commercial. Well, that's, that's what people seem to remember more than anything else. Well, uh, it was such a highly visible, um, and, and I guess you, you were more visible because it was in more places and on uh, at more time frames than the single appearances on the Texaco Star Theater. That was a certain day and a certain time. That's right. Would that yeah. yeah, well, what you're saying is absolutely correct, particularly on Saturday mornings. Uh, the commercials would run uh, all morning long on different shows, on different children's shows. Uh-huh. And so, uh, as my wife said to me on Saturday mornings, it was the uh, Jimmy Nelson, Danny O'Day spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> It was at, by that time it was all uh, on uh, tape or film, so I didn't ha have to show up. But prior to that, uh, uh, we started doing them live. Uh, they were they were originally live commercials. Wow. Uh, 
it, I want to move um, through the list here because it just keeps going on and on. And then I want to talk about the live versus the filming and all that went into the commercials. And I know from our conversation the other day that you did most of the writing for all of the commercials that you did throughout your career. So I'm, I need to talk to you about a writer, too. Uh, you, you've just multiple professions here. In 1960, I have a note here, Studio 99 and a half. <laughs> yes. Does that sound right? That's correct. That what was a, is the that? The show, yes. It, it was on uh, locally in New York on uh, what is now the CBS station there. Uh-huh. Uh, but at that time it was a commercial station, and it was uh, uh, five days a week across the board, uh, half hour uh, each day, and uh, it was live. We, uh, we actually did them from their studios in Newark, uh, New Jersey, and... Uh, it was uh, Danny and Parple and Humphrey and myself and a half a dozen uh, little puppets that I also uh, used. So I, I was doing about 13 voices uh, uh, each day on that show. Wow. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was great fun because, uh, as I said, it was live. Uh, it, was, it was slightly scripted, but an awful lot of it was off the cuff. <laughs> Did you ever get the voices mixed up? Well... Not exactly on that show. Uh, I, I was uh, pretty good on, on that show. A couple of times on uh, live appearances, I, I got confused. <laughs> uh, Danny's voice came out of Humphrey, and Humphrey's voice came out of Danny. But we made a routine out of it, so it's, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, I, it can happen to you when you're doing uh, like the third show in one night. Uh -huh. A lot of the nightclubs that I worked in the early days, you do three shows a night, and by the time that third show came around. Uh, it was easy to get voices mixed up. <laughs> you you have to be ambidextrous with your figures. You've got one on one hand and one on the other. Yeah. So well, you bring a switching back and forth all the time. Well, that that actually helps to uh, keep the voices uh, separated because I know that on my right hand, when that finger moves to work the the mouth, I know that's going to be Danny. The left hand, when that finger moves, I know that's going to be Sparkle. That's how, I, how. That's what it does to my brain, anyway. It tells me that. You're in sync with each other. Well, that's comforting. I feel a little bit better for you now. I do want to mention that in 1988, again, if I have my dates correct, you were the second ventriloquist to be inducted into the Ventriloquist Hall of Fame. Well, yes, I'm very proud of that. Yes, I. Yes, I was. The. Uh, very first uh, one was Paul Winchell, if you recall Paul I Winchell do. and Jerry Mahoney. Uh-huh. And uh, I was very honored to be the second one because the third one was Edgar Bergen. And, uh, but he's been my idol for ever since I was a little kid listening to him on radio. So, uh, yes, uh, that, that was a very nice honor. I'm very proud of that. I can tell. And uh, from, from my perspective, it was well-earned. You are also, and I, I swear I'm coming to the end of the list here, you're going to have to help me fill in the other things along the way. Sure. But you are one of just five ventriloquists chosen for a fairly recent book, Dummy Days, America's Favorite Ventriloquist from Radio and Early TV. I, I love that book. It, it, it is, I don't know whether you've had a chance to look at it or read it, but... Uh, it does, yes. It, it gives uh, biographies of all of us, uh, Edgar Bergen, Paul Winchell, Sherry Lewis, Senior Wences, and myself, all, all of us who had uh, appeared on either radio or television in, the, in what we call the golden age of television. Uh-huh. 
and uh, it, it's a very, very complete uh, biography of, uh, of each of us, and uh, with lots of pictures, <laughs> lots of old, uh, old photos. Oh, I love it, and so will a lot of people. I, I have gathered from the information that I was able to collect that the book is out of print, but there are copies available in different places, including Amazon.com. Yes, that's well, correct. Yes, you can still, yes, it, it is out of print, but uh, you can still uh, order it through uh, Amazon and, uh -huh. some, and some of the bookstores, too. Yeah, it, it's still available, and from the reviews that I read, it is one spectacular book. Well, it's a, it, it's a, it's a coffee table book, you know, it's that, that size, uh -huh. and, uh, and, and just loaded with photographs which makes it interesting to just, just thumb through. You don't have to sit down and read the whole book at one time. Wow. And tonight you and Betty were grand marshals in a parade. Yes, we were, here in Cape Coral, Florida. And uh, that, that was kind of nice. It was the, what they call uh, uh, honoring Cape Coral. They have a parade every year. And uh, we're very uh, honored to be uh, the grand marshals today, even though it was uh, 52 degrees. <sighs> Oh, and, ouch, and, I didn't even look. <laughs> and, and, and the wind blowing. Yeah. Oh, oh. And, and for Florida, that's cold. Jimmy, I'm just not built for this. I've been whining. Every weekend I am on with Walt and I whine about the weather. So well, you, you, you have plenty to join you because everybody we talk to down here says this is the longest, coldest winter they have experienced, and a lot of us have been here 40 years or more. Uh-huh. I've been here a lot longer than that. Well, then you know. Um, did you say four or 40? 40. Oh, I haven't been here that long. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. <laughs> no. I think that's, that I think that's one reason they asked us to be uh, in the, uh, the Grand Marshals, because this is honoring Cape Coral's 40th year as a city. Ah. And uh, so the fact that we've been here from the beginning uh, uh, was the main reason we were there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay, I, for, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, we were talking about the book, uh, Dummy Days, Mm -hmm. And I, I ought to tell you that this, this very day, the, the 6th of uh, March, they uh, have just released a DVD called I'm No Dummy. And uh, it, it is it just uh, just now available as of today. And it, uh, it, it's a wonderful DVD. It, uh, it features a whole bunch of ventriloquists. What it does, it, it, it kind of explains uh, what ventriloquism is all about. And, uh, and those of us who have done... Uh, a lot of work, and uh, uh, they, they use film clips, etc. And uh, they feature, uh, you know, Paul Winchell, Jerry Mahoney, and Edgar Berger and Charlie McCarthy. And then some of the newer ones. Uh, I know if you know Jeff Dunham. Uh, Jeff is uh, one of the popular new ventriloquists who's doing very well. Jay Johnson, who uh, had a show on Broadway called The Two and Only, and he won a, an Emmy, uh, not an Emmy, what do you mean, a Tony. Uh -huh. for, for that. And, and uh, oh, a bunch of other ventriloquists. And, and, and what I'm saying is it's just brand new. Which, uh, you know, talking about the book just uh, just brought that to mind. And uh, so it, it now is out uh, uh, on, on the market as of today. Mm -hmm. And people can watch it. They don't have to put all the work into reading it. No, that's right. That's this is good. Thing. You've got a, a whole other medium here for people to enjoy. Well, I uh, hope so, and I hope uh, hope people will uh, uh, listen to it and enjoy or watch it, rather. When we get closer to the end, and uh, you have to signal me if I'm overstaying my welcome here tonight, because if you left it up to me, we would be here for breakfast. So, what are you uh, serving? 
uh, <laughs> you're willing to stay that long. Good. I'll do, I'll do the eggs. <laughs> Weldon can bring the toast. Okay, uh, this is good. But we do have a live line for call-in guests, for people who want to um, give you comments or questions or just say hi. It's uh, 714-545-2000. And it's Jimmy Nelson we're talking with, and he's got his friends with him tonight, Danny and Sparkle. It's really nice that you stayed awake for us, and uh, you're with us tonight. Well, I'm glad to be here, and I hope you get some uh, calls. I'd love to talk to uh, your listeners. I hope so, too. And Danny and Sparkle, are you still with us? You bet we are. Yes, indeed. Mm, oh, I say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is good. J Jimmy, how many years were you with the Texaco Star Theater in Miltonboro? I, I was there for two years, two two seasons, actually two full years, really. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, we, we did the, the commercial, uh, as you know, uh, in those days, calling it the Texaco Star Theater, why naturally Texaco was the only sponsor. Uh -huh. uh, you didn't have a, a commercials every ten minutes. You had one commercial in the hour, and that was my spot. But it lasted five minutes, <laughs> and sometimes longer. This was live television now, uh -huh. and we tried to do comedy as well as sell the product. And it was all done with a live audience, and no no uh, sound tracks, so all live audience. And if they laughed and, and applauded, uh, the, the commercial was sometimes spread to seven minutes. <laughs> but uh, it was it was a great experience, a lot of fun. I, I, I had a chance to work with a lot of the uh, guest stars who came on the show. Uh, they, they would work in the commercial with me. Not just Milton Berle, but uh, we had Ronald Reagan one time. And uh, I, ha I actually have a film clip of that uh, where he and Danny and, and Humphrey and myself did a, did a technical commercial. That one is up on YouTube. Is it, is it on YouTube, really? It is on YouTube, and it's marked um, uh, Danny O'Day and Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Nelson and Ronald Reagan. So for people who want to take a peek at what old-time television was in the golden years, that's a great way to do it. Well, well, we yes, have a call. And, and when you look at it, you have to realize this was, a, this was all live. If, anybody, if, you, if you goofed, why, everybody saw you goof. You, know, you couldn't stop and do it over again. And we have a call from Pittsburgh, California. Hello, Jim. Hello, Walden. Hello, Mr. Nelson. Well, hello. Who am I talking uh, Jim in Pittsburgh, California. Jim? It, yes, sir. My memory, two of them. You were talking about the children's shows that you advertised Nestle's Click On. On Saturday mornings, two of the programs that I recall where we often heard Nestle's commercials were the Alvin Show and the Roy reruns of the old Roy Rogers Show. Roy Rogers, that's right. Alvin, uh, uh, Sky King. Right, and I, you, may, you may have even done the tagline now that I've heard your voice without the Danny O'Day voice, you might have been the one that actually said this portion of the Alvin show is brought to you by Nestle's. Did you do those taglines? I think you might have. Yes, I did. Uh, some, not always. Sometimes I used a, a professional announcer. But yes, uh, very often I did the tags as well. You're right. Yes. And my other memory, two other things. One of your Nestle's quick commercials from either 62 or 63, you'll need Nestle's quick and milk this summer uh, is on the Rhino album TV's Greatest Commercials. Yes, as a matter of fact, I, I think that uh, Patricia knows about that one. She, uh, uh, We had talked uh, before the show and she was uh, talking about it. 
Yes, that was the one that we, uh, uh, I, I think what the one that's on is strictly a radio. It's a TV, this is a TV one, but they, they put a, an audio album out of, of TV commercials. Uh-huh. It's the one where you go, if you're swimming, if you're boating, or, uh, you'll need Nestle's Quick and Milk this summer. You'll hear the sound of a baseball bat and different different visual things that were done on the commercial. You'll need Nestle's Quick this summer. Yeah. yeah. Danny knows that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that, that was a fun. We shot that uh, at an amusement park, and that sounds that you're hearing. Right. And you said no, it's not no sweet drink, just, you know, good energy and all of that stuff. Not sticky sweet was one of your taglines in that. Yeah. By golly, you're bringing back a lot of memories. I <laughs> I don't, don't remember them word for word, but, you, but you're right. That's what we were talking about. The other one thing I wanted to bring up was my second grade teacher, one of them, had the record album. On the cricket label, your version of Peter and the Wolf that you all did about 1959 or so. Yes, yes. Any memories of, ma- of working for Cricket Records, and do you do any other albums? Yes, uh, that one, that one is, is my per- personal favorite because we did it with a full symphony orchestra. Uh, but uh, we also did for Cricket, we did a, a, a musical version of Pinocchio uh, with all my characters. And then we did another one called Joke Along. This was back in the days when sing-along was so popular, and we did joke-along with uh, Jimmy, and we did that in front of a live uh, children's audience. Well, that was kind of, you know, kind of the golden era, towards the the end of the golden era of children's records, when audio entertainment was, you know, very popular. When you think of all the audio, uh, most people forget, um, you know, television became so big in the 50s, many people forget that it was also a golden era for records. Well, because uh, uh, children would sit still for that. I don't know if they'll sit still for that anymore. <laughs> but it was, they were very fun records, and it's, it's a pleasure talking to you, and I wish you many more years of success. And uh, Well, thank you, Jim. That's very nice of you. I appreciate it, and uh, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Talk to you all later. Bye-bye. We are back. And we're back. I just want to remind everybody, you can call Jimmy at 714 714- Five four five two zero seven one, or if you want to look at, we have a link on the Saturday page of the home page to a video of Jimmy and Farfel and Daniel Day. I think it's the uh, the one in the sn- the ski. No, um, um, Farfel is snowboarding. Yeah, I think that's the one that uh, uh, Kim put up. And if, if you look, if you go to the program and look at the bottom, we have a direct link. So. You want to look at that? That might trigger some memories uh, for you. Anyway, Jim, I have a question for you. Yes, Walter. Um, were you ever given an opportunity to do radio? Yes, I was. Radio? You mean? Yep. Uh, not exactly like Edgar Bergen. No. I mean McCarthy. Right. They had they had a wonderful radio show for many years, and isn't that incongruous? The ventriloquist on radio. I know. <laughs> but but he was very very successful. Yes, I had a I had a show on ABC uh, Radio Network uh, back in the uh, uh, late fifties, and uh, it was called Highway Frolics. It was on Sunday uh, evening, uh, actually uh, afternoon and evening, and it ran for five hours. And I I did shtick with Danny and Farfel and, and Humphrey, uh, but it was basically a, a music show where I would lead into uh, records. Re- record, current recording. 
So did you pick the music? How did they? H- how was? Uh, how did they structure the show? Was it live? Can you talk about the how you put something together for five hours? Yes, it was live, mm-hmm. and uh, as I say, it was uh, on the ABC network, so we would, uh, during the uh, five hours, uh, not only did uh, they play records, but we would cut away for uh, for the news, and we would cut away for uh, other things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while, we actually had a live, or- a live uh, orchestra in the studio and did some live musical numbers, but mostly it was uh, Sinatra records and the uh, Current Perry uh, Como and so forth, the ones who were really popular in those days. Yeah. And uh, we would do requests that would, uh, we didn't have a, a, a phone in like you do, they would, people would write in and request things. And that lasted for uh, for uh, two seasons, and it was, uh, it was a, a fun thing to do. You asked about did I pick the uh, music, yeah. and along with the, uh, uh, the, the gentleman who, uh, ran the music library and the two of us would sit down and I would help pick out some things. I, I, I wanted to pick out the things I enjoyed and uh, he went along with that pretty well. <laughs> that makes it easy five hours when you can listen to what you want to listen to. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I have to tell you something about Walden's skills in the in relation to the commercial that Jim was just talking about about the summertime with the amusement park. Yes. I know you have a story about this. Walden immediately picked up that. Uh, incidentally, I think this one is up on the website as well. Walden, um, Kim was going to post this particular ad. It's a soundtrack at the uh, amusement park, and Danny and Farfel are singing a duet. Now I got to tell you. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wish I wish I could really take credit for that, but uh, <laughs> I, I have to admit that we we did a little dubbing. Yeah, I could tell. I, I, well, Jim, you're really good. If you can sing, if both you can sing at the same time. And yeah. Walden picked it up right away, first pass. I I, I like to tell people that ventriloquism is uh, uh, is like magic tricks. Uh, you, you it's a misdirection. Uh, but uh, you just—it's physically impossible to do two, vo- two voices at one time. I can't—I mis- can't misdirect that that far. Now, I recall your uh, from your conversation the other day that this was the first time and the only time that you did dubbing for yes. a commercial. Ex- exactly. I—I—I I, uh, I did that under duress <laughs> because I said that I, I don't want any fakes here. I, when I when I do when I'm off camera, I still don't want to move my lips. <laughs> uh, when I'm on camera, of course, I don't want to. Uh, I just wanted to keep it pure. But uh, for this particular uh, thing, they said, if you're going to sing this song, you got to have a little duet. So I, I caved in and did it. It sounds really good. <laughs> How did you feel about the outcome? Well, the outco- I, uh, the, it turned out to be a very nice commercial, so uh, I, I really couldn't complain. But I didn't. But I, I never did that again. The snowboard one, it sounds like you were in an echo chamber or something. Did they add that to you? Did you do it in one of the old-time radio telephone booths where they can have control over your, you know, to put a little verbiage on you? You remember how that was actually done? Yeah, it was, it, you're exactly right. It was done in the studio. Uh, and uh, actually, we uh, the commercial that we did that you saw uh, was just was done through a playback. Yeah. So it, it sounded like you were in the Swiss Alps with the echoes. Yeah, well, that was uh, that was mechanically done, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was a good commercial, too. I just I just love the duet. You know, I think that's the only time 
I ever heard you sing something other than Nestle's True Damning. You've got a good voice. <laughs> well, we d I did a commercial for Nestle with uh, uh, another character you may not be familiar with. Uh, it's a cat. Her name was Frittata Tita. And uh, I, uh, she, uh, she is in, in the suitcase. I retired her because uh, it didn't work. Uh, all of us have uh, things that work and things that don't work. Powerful works for me beautifully, and Danny and Humphrey. But without a seat, it just uh, didn't take off. But we did do one commercial, and I had to sing the the whole uh, song in my own voice. Uh huh. And uh, I, I I don't think I would ever get a recording contract for, uh, <laughs> for that. I, I feel I feel sure. As a matter of fact, I never did. <laughs> How do you work out a routine, Jimmy? You sort of just block it out in your head and and save your voice and do it uh, in the studio or live? How do you? What was your normal method of pre preparing? Well, first of all, uh, the commercial, uh, and I've done so many commercials, uh, I, I relate to that. Uh, you are given the copy that the client wants done, the, 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 you know, what they want said about their product. And then you try and find some comedy lines that will go around it while you're still selling the product. So it's it's a matter of uh, getting the material from the client and then taking it and working it. And then uh, reading it to my wife, who uh, throws in some lines of her own. She's been a great uh, help to me in writing uh, things over the years. The commercials that you did on the Texaco Star Theater were actually entertainment pieces that were inserted in the center of the show. It wasn't that you stood there with the two figures and talked about Texaco for the entire thing. It really was an entertainment segment. Well, that was, that, was that a common technique, or was that unique to Texaco? At the time, it was unique to Texaco. I don't think uh, anybody had been doing uh, comedy commercials other than Sid Stone, who did it before I uh, joined the show. Uh, it, no, it, you're right. It was exactly part of the show. It was written in the, the, the script. Uh, I, I had uh, a writer who worked uh, with me on it, one of, the, one of Milton Berle's writers, uh, and we tried to integrate it. As a matter of fact, uh, usually one of the guests would introduce or actually walk into my set and uh, be part of the commercial so that it, it flowed just like one show. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a narrow word from our sponsor or we'll be right back. No, it was part of the show. It was actually integrated into the show. How did that process come about? Well, as I said, the, it had been done before I joined the show. Uh, so this was, the, okay, this was a continuation as opposed to uh, a brand new um, approach to advertising. Yes, it was. Yes, at that time. This, this now is in uh, 1950. Well, the Milton Burr show started in 1948, and they had been doing uh, comedy spots uh, uh, until, uh, you know, up until the time I joined the show, and then they just mm -hmm. continued doing it. Yeah. How, how did they, they, the big day in the sky, how were these spots evaluated uh, in, in terms of success? There was a, let's see, I'm trying to remember, oh yes, uh, you know, you have the Oscars and the Emmys and et cetera, et cetera. There was a thing called the Clio Awards, mm -hmm. and they were awards for commercials. Uh, this is again back in the 50s. I, I, I don't think they're still around anymore. And we did uh, win a Clio for, uh, for one of the uh, uh, 
Nestle commercial. You did. How did Texaco know that it was working? Uh, well, I don't know. The, the fact that they picked up my option <laughs> had, may have had something to do with it. Uh-huh. Uh, they, this, I don't, I think, I'm trying to remember whether these were the Nielsen ratings, whether they were out yet or not. This, this really goes way back. But there was a rating system. Uh, but that was for the whole show. Either Hooper or Crossway, probably. Yes, I think it was. It yeah. may have been Hooper, but mm -hmm. uh, it, yeah, it, one of those. Mm -hmm. But it was, they did not evaluate the commercial as such. They uh, evaluated the, the entire show. So the only re reason they knew was uh, uh, mail, fan mail. That's always a pretty good uh, parameter. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, within the industry, uh, people yeah. giving them a feedback. How many years did you represent Nestle's? Ten consecutive years. Ooh. Started in uh, 55 and ran right through to 65. And uh, that was a record up until uh, Josephine the Plumber came along, and uh, she did about 12 years. <laughs> I don't know if you remember Josephine. Yes. Jane, yep. Withers. Jane, Jane Withers. Jane Withers, yes. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I held the record for a little while. Would you tell the story about how you landed that particular ad and representation? Sure, I'd be glad to. It's 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 in the book, uh, Dummy Days. So, uh, <laughs> but yes, it was. Uh, uh, I had to audition uh, for the Nestle uh, show, even though they knew my work. Uh, they I had to audition for the uh, uh, the uh, advertising agency, and I went in with uh, Danny and Farfel, and they handed me this Nestle jingle. Uh, which I had never heard before, but the, the, the musical notes were there. And they said to me, how, how would you do this? And I said, well, and off the top of my head, I figured, well, I'm going to sing it. And I had Danny do N-E-S-T-L-E-S, Danny. N-E-S-T-L-E-S. Go ahead. Nestle makes the very best. And I figured Farfel would do chocolate. And so I pulled the control. I was a little nervous about auditioning. My hands were a little sweaty. <laughs> my fingers, and Farfel did chocolate, and about that time my hand just slipped off the control, and his mouth slapped shut like bang, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, 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 and they said, oh, that, that's okay, that's all right, don't call us, we'll call you, and when I finally got the call back, they said, oh, by the way, leave that mouth clap in, we loved it. And so, by accident, I got the job. And uh, Farfel will never let me forget it. <laughs> he saved the day. <laughs> he saved the day by letting me slip and, and, the, and the mouth went. Because that's, that's a no-no for ventriloquists. Don't ever let the mouth slap shut. I mean, that just spoils the illusion. So, that's what happened. That's really interesting. Farfel, are you there? Oh, yes, I am. And, and, and you're pleased with yourself about having come to the rescue and saved the day? Oh, yes, 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 yes. But I'll tell you, don't, don't tell this to anybody else, but every time I do that chocolate and I slap the mouth, it hurts like it. Don't say it. It does. <laughs> it hurts. I, I, I hate it, but he's got to do it. That's it. It's all right. Your teeth, uh, how are your teeth? Do your teeth hurt? Yeah, they're like, like the devil, yeah. <laughs> that word again. Yeah. <laughs> That's cute. Well, Jimmy, in the beginning, 
you've got such an unusual history. I'd, I'd really like to talk a little bit about the beginning, about how and when you became interested in ventriloquism. Well, as I think I said early in the, this interview uh, that I started at 10 years old, uh, I think a lot of ventriloquists will say the same thing. Uh, we, we're introverted to a, to a sense, to a, to a degree. Uh, I was a little bashful. Uh, I was in the, I guess it was the fourth grade, uh, fourth or fifth, and uh, we, we all were supposed to do oral recitations. I don't know that, what they call it now, but that's what they called it then. And uh, I, I really, I was very nervous getting up uh, in front of the class and speaking. And uh, my aunt got me a uh, ventriloquist, little little tiny doll for a Christmas present. And uh, I brought it to school, like uh, you have a thing called show and tell. I don't know if they have that anymore either, but uh, they did. And I found out that getting up and doing these recitations, not nothing funny, just uh, history or whatever it was we were doing, uh, through uh, this little dummy, uh, I wasn't bashful at all, because I figured if he made a mistake, we'd blame it on him, not me. <laughs> and I, I've, I've kept that attitude uh, to this day. <laughs> but then, yeah, I got, got started in, uh, in the fourth grade just doing that in front of the class. <laughs> How did the rest of the kids in the class react to that? Well, that's just it. They reacted beautifully. As a matter of fact, I finally started slipping jokes in <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, got, got laughter, and the teacher didn't mind that at all. She thought that was okay. And, uh, yeah, so uh, that's really how I got started. She was a pretty good influence in your pursuing ventriloquism, as I recall from conversations we've had. Yes, she was, and I'll never forget her name. It was Mrs. McSweeney. And she was a lovely old, uh, old in those days we thought all teachers were old, uh, <laughs> elderly uh, Irish lady, and uh, she encouraged me uh, very much so, so that when I went on to the next grade, uh, the teacher was a very good friend of hers, and she said, you uh, keep, keep him going, and that was Mrs. Shanley, and Mrs. between Mrs. McSweeney and Mrs. Shanley, uh, that's, that's supposedly why I have an Irish dummy. Oh, that's a good story. I like that. I had never heard about poor Danny O'Day. Danny, that's how you got your name. Are you okay with it? Well, that's what he tells me. Yeah, listen, it's okay. Uh, you want to know the truth? No, don't tell it. No, you want to know. Oh, don't, don't you want to know the truth? About yeah. Why he called me Danny O'Day? Yeah. Because it's easy to say without moving your lips. <laughs> Man. I oh, mean, I try, like that. Try saying Charlie McCarthy without moving your lips. Oh, that's good. Well, Farfel, how do you say Farfel well, without moving your lips? Well, that's, well, that's, that's kind of hard, isn't it, Mel? How do you say the letter F without moving your mouth? You know, does it come out of charcoal? <laughs> <laughs> or Farfu? Or what is it? No, no, no. It's, 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 it's substitution. You take the letter F and uh, you make it sound like you can say S, like E-S-H, and uh -huh. then... Uh, then you think about F, and it comes out powerful. There, especially if his name is spelled in front of people. Y yes. That's part of the illusion as well, I guess. Jimmy, you were performing professionally, as you said earlier. You're 16 years old, and you were doing professional performances. Yes. That's unheard of. Well, Do you re go ahead. No, I, no go ahead. I'll finish the question. Well, mm -mm. That really is my question. Oh, okay. how, does, how does a 16-year-old land an appearance as a professional performer? This was World War II. This was wartime. Uh-huh. And uh, 
see, you know, all, all the guys were in the service, and uh, so many uh, of us of that age uh, were able to uh, do jobs that would have been done for older people. The, you, you weren't supposed to work in a nightclub until you were 21, but uh, they looked the other way. If, if you had an act that, uh, that they liked, and, and they booked you. Yes, I was, I was working in uh, nightclubs when I was that young. So if I'm hearing you correctly, except for World War II, you would not have been able to break into the business that early. Now, that's one way of putting it, isn't it? I owe, I owe my career to World War II. Well, that's kind of, <laughs> but, kind of but a I, harsh way to put it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't quite mean it that way. <laughs> but that's true. That's true. There, there were so many opportunities. And then I, I had the chance to do a lot of USO shows. Uh, for the servicemen, ah, uh, and okay. had a chance to do some traveling doing that. Yeah, but I was just thinking. I know Paul was 15 when he won the uh, major boat amateur hour show. Yes, he was. And I, and I think Edgar was about 17 when he started to hit it bed, right out of high school. So you, all three, of you have that. You in your early to mid teens when you, you know, really got it going. Well, that's true, and that's wh why uh, so many of us uh, were, were working professionally and mm -hmm. uh, uh, never did uh, go to college. I mean, the, our college was the uh, College of Hard Knocks. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. just went out there and, and uh, working all uh, from, from then on, professionally. Just did it. Do you recall your first professional performance in front of an audience? Professional? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I did an awful lot of amateur shows, uh, you know, from 10 years old on. Uh -huh. My first professional show was at the Englewood Theater in Chicago, the south side of Chicago. It was an old uh, movie house that ran vaudeville acts on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> and I got booked for a three-day appearance for $35, and I thought that was fantastic. And uh, uh, what, what they used to say was, a theater like that you're booked there on your way up or on your way down. <laughs> <laughs> you clearly were not on your way down. You were on your way up on this one. Do you recall the reaction of the audience? How did you prepare for it? Tell me about that. Well, it, I, I had this uh, act that I'd been doing uh, at amateur shows for a long time, and uh, I just uh, did it. I just uh, did the old jokes that I was doing. And I think the audience was sympathetic because I was so young. Uh, and I, I looked younger than I was also. Uh, so uh, they were very, you know, they laughed politely. And uh, when I finished, they gave me a big round of applause. I had to come back for another bow. Uh, I was, uh, I, I guess I was hooked at that point. Uh, if, if, they, if they liked me for, with my little corny uh, uh, amateur type jokes, why? I better work hard on it and uh, see how we can do. By the end of the three days, I had a lot more confidence than I had that uh, first show. Now, what kind of a figure were you working with at that time? Just one little dummy, and his, his name was Danny. I didn't even have the O'Day on it yet. It was a, a department store figure, uh, something like the Danny O'Days that they still sell today. You can still get the Dannys uh, mm -hmm. in the, on some of the catalog books. And... Uh, my, my father helped me with it. Uh, he, he made it look more professional. He painted it, put a wig on it, and uh, that's what I, I used. Uh, I used that professionally for quite a, quite a long time. I'm but really impressed about your dad. What kind of work did he do? He was uh, a cost accountant. We had no uh, 
no show business in our family. I, I was the, the first and only one. Wow. Uh, you were on the road two years after that. When you're 18, you are actually on the road with a ventriloquist act. Yes. Yes, I was. Now on here, the road. Go ahead. I'm here sorry. Again, here again, uh, uh, bookings were much easier to get because we're still uh, getting now to the end of the, of, of the war, but you still had uh, uh, places that were booking uh, younger people. Did you have an agent at that time, or was it all just by ref reference and referrals? I, I, I did finally have an agent. Uh, there were so many of them in Chicago that uh, uh, you could make the rounds and leave your picture with them, and uh, uh, you'd you could get a call from uh, one or two of them. Mm. Uh, it wasn't until a few years later that I actually got a manager, which, mm. which uh, helped me get things like the Ed Sullivan Show and the rest, yeah. Uh -huh. I'll take that call, and hello, Carl. You are on with Jimmy Nelson. Yeah, Walden Ray in Chicago. Hello, Ray. Hi, Ray. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Jimmy. Hi there. Am I talking to Ray? Yes. All right. From Chicago, my hometown. <laughs> Where about you live in this area, Jimmy? I lived on the north side, went to Lakeview High School in the shade of uh, Wrigley Field. Oh, yeah, I know exactly where it's at. Right. You know, Jimmy, I was wondering why I've been listening to the show, and I've really enjoyed it because I remember you so well. And the thing that I always remembered is that you were, at that time, you didn't, you didn't move your lips <laughs> when you were working with Danny and Farfel, and I remember Edgar Bergen, and I really enjoyed him, but he moved his lips unbelievably. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I knew Edgar uh, in, in later years. His answer is, he was on radio for 18 consecutive years. He had 200 people in the studio audience and millions of people listening out there. He said, who do you think I performed for? Ah. He said, I moved my lips. He said, and after a few years of doing that, I, I really lost control. Yeah. Yeah, folks, a great story. Bill Baldwin was his radio announcer during the Coca-Cola period. And this was the early 50s, and they were having a summer engagement, so you all remember they took the summer off for radio. And he was live in Las Vegas. And somebody, somebody in the front row had a few, few minutes, too much to drink, and he was saying very out loud, you know, Paul Winchell would never move your lip. And I guess I just took a bow, and he said, but he doesn't have my $6 million. Uh, <laughs> good return. Yeah. yeah. Jimmy, did you ever have a chance to know um, that Senior Wences? Yes. Senior Wences? Yes. Yes, indeed. I went to his 100th birthday party. Oh, my. In Atlantic City. They, uh, uh, all the people that had worked with him, uh, Mickey Rooney was there, uh, a whole bunch of people that had uh, worked with him over the years. I, of course, never worked with him. You don't book two ventriloquists on the same show. But I had a chance to meet him at that time and his wife. I, I believe he did live to be 103, but they were celebrating his uh, birthday party, and uh, we all performed for him. And believe it or not, he, with the help of his wife, got up on stage. They 
had it in the little box, the head in the box, and he did, and the little Johnny on his hand, and he did about five minutes of his old act to a standing ovation. It was it was a, a thrill to see that. Yeah, that must have been something. How long ago was that? Do you recall? Well, let's see. That's got to be. Let's see. This is got to be about ten years or so ago. Isn't that something? I remember him so well from the uh, Ed Sullivan days. Oh, yes. And everybody went around saying, is that right? It's all right. <laughs> because they loved, he didn't have one joke in his whole act. It was all situation, and it was hilarious. Yeah, I, I do remember him and Paul Winchell. And there was another one of my favorites in that era was um, Sherry something. I can't remember. Sherry Lewis. Sherry Lewis. Sherry Lewis, yes. Yeah. I did know her quite well. I knew her when she was a teenager in New York and uh, saw her uh, climb to uh, uh, some real pretty good fame. She uh, was, and, she, and now talk about not moving your lips. She was marvelous at that. When she was on television and with little lamb chop that she used, yes. uh, the camera was right, right on, tight on her all the time and uh, she didn't move a muscle. She was marvelous. You know, uh, Jimmy, I wanted to ask you, too. I don't remember the fellow's name, but there was a guy on uh, an Idol, uh, American Idol, and he did real, real well, and he's supposed to be um, uh, big in uh, Las Vegas, or he's going to Las Vegas. Honey, you should bring that up. <laughs> Terry Fader is his name. Fader. And the show was America's Got Talent. Yes. And he won it. He won a million dollars and a contract in Las Vegas. Next week, uh, week from yesterday, we are going out to Las Vegas to help him celebrate his first year at the Mirage. And uh, he's going to have a big celebration, and we're going to be out there next week to, to help him celebrate. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I look forward to I, I'm I'm planning a trip there in June. We usually go in June, and I'm going to make it a point to stop and see his show now. Now, I'm sure he'll still be there at the Mirage because he's been there a solid year, and uh, I'm sure his contract's been renewed. So, yes, I hope you drop in and see him, yes. Uh, so, Jimmy, what are you doing these days? Well, these days, uh, people say, you're, you're retired, right? I say, no, I'm not retired. I'm, 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 you'd probably say semi-retired, but uh, as I've said so many times, uh, you, you never retire in show business until the telephone stops ringing. It hasn't yet, so I still I still perform. Yes, mostly mostly here in Florida. I don't do as much traveling as I used to, uh, but uh, uh, shows are still there. An awful lot of things are for an uh, audience that remembers me from television, and uh, I, I do I do shows now uh, with film clips, and uh, uh, I naturally still have Danny and Farfel uh, with me, and uh, I do uh, shows for a lot of the. Uh, elder hostel groups who uh, travel here through Florida, and uh, and some kids too. So I work uh, both both sides of the street. Yeah, you know that's that's so one. I'm so delighted to hear you on the program. Uh, this is one of my favorite shows, and uh, there's a whole group of us who talk about all the wonderful entertainers that we remember so well. And uh, you know, you don't get to hear them. You're in Florida. We're up here in Chicago. But, uh, you know, having this opportunity opportunity to even speak to you is just uh, just tremendous for me. And well, thank you, Ray. A whole wealth of other listeners as well. 
Well, it's nice talking to you too, Ray, and I uh, thank you for bringing back such good memories of Chicago. Where, where are you on the north, south side? Well, right now I moved in the western suburbs, Elmwood Park. Oh, yes, I know that, yes. Yeah, but I've lived, uh, yeah, I was born and raised up in Chicago on, uh, oh, <clears throat> various places, but probably around Grand and Western. Okay, sure. All right, I know that And well. then... Uh, you know, in, in and about that area, you know, and I still love Chicago, but I sure love to go to Florida for a month or two during the, <laughs> during the beaver months. Don't, don't, don't come this winter. <laughs> We've had a terrible winter for tourists who uh, have come down here and uh, expected to be in the pool or on the beach every day, and it's just been one, one cold day after another. Well, Jimmy, I hear Patricia complaining about those 50 and 60 degree days. Yeah, well, for me, that's a heat wave. I'd be on the golf course in my plus fours. <laughs> I, re I remember Chicago weather well. I've, I've, I've shoveled down the snow I can't eat. <laughs> we still have <laughs> It's fading fast, though. We're in the 40s now, so uh, oh, well, okay. All right. I'll be on the golf course soon. Jimmy, it's a real delight. Uh, I hope you do another 50 years. You're one of the best of the best. I'll always remember you for that, and... Uh, I, w I wish you every, uh, you know, good health and uh, continued success. Thank you, Ray. I appreciate that, and I'm happy to say I'm in good health and uh, uh, still still working. Excellent. Bye-bye now. Thank you, Ray. Hey, thanks. Hi, Patricia. Bye, Walden. Bye-bye, Ray. And you can also give Jimmy a call at 714-545-2071. That is 714-545-2071. Two oh seven one. If you forget the number, he'll be there on the website uh, on uh, what we are broadcasting tonight. In so New Jersey, that's seven five. No, no. Said nineteen ninety five. That's cute. Uh, just uh, as a reminder for people who m might have been tuning in a little bit later, we're talking with ventriloquist Jimmy Nelson who is here with his pals, um, Farfel and Danny O'Day. Uh, Farfel, would you say hi? Mm, is that all I get to say? Hi. Well, you can say more than oh, that. Okay. Hello. Oh, hello to you, too. And Danny? Uh, I'm still here. Yeah. Still Glad to hear it. And I think you've probably got two of the most recognizable voices in entertainment history. Is that true? I think so. Oh, it's so good to talk to the two of you. I love it. Yeah. Um, Farfel was not a member of the team from the outset. Farfel, you joined the gang a little bit later. Um, yeah, how did, Jimmy, how did that, huh? Farfel, are you there? they need me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. You came to the rescue once again, Farfel? Yes, I did. I've been doing it all my professional life. <laughs> I, I want to know, then, who gets the money, Farfo or Danny O'Day? Well, I have to admit, uh, I, I take good care of them. Uh, Danny gets repainted once a year. Uh, Farfo gets recovered once a year. And don't you wish you could do the same for yourself? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. But I take very good care of them, yes. 
that I did at the time was uh, 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 jokes with Van, with Danny, jokes with Farkle, jokes with Danny and Farkle, and then music. We we always did music in the act. Uh, Danny would sing, I would sing, Farkle would sing, and we had because uh, all these hotels had had uh, big bands behind you, so you had to carry your musical arrangements with you. Uh, so it was it was that type of thing, uh, jokes, music, jokes, music that probably wouldn't work today. Uh, I, I mentioned Jeff Dunham. Jeff uh, uh, tours now, and he, he packs them in. He packs them in auditoriums, but he has a young crowd, and he does the uh, the, the drug-related jokes, the homosexual-related jokes, uh, things like that uh, that uh, people seem to think you have to do today. Uh-huh. Uh, he does it. He does it very well, and does uh, uh, gets a huge response because what he does is funny. It's uh, you know, it's, but the theme. Uh, of uh, shows today uh, would not would not be good for me. I, I couldn't. Uh, I don't think that I would uh, uh, fill an auditorium uh, with the type of uh, material they want to hear. Uh, my older folks, uh, my elder high school groups, uh, they're wonderful. They they like the uh, the type of uh, thing that I do. What kind of music did you choose to sing, Jimmy? I did. Uh, uh, for years, I did a song called. Uh, Best things in life are free. Ah, okay. Yeah, I did that, and uh, Danny would interrupt me, and uh, uh, in the middle of the thing, I would uh, smoke a cigarette <laughs> while Danny was singing, and then we did the switch. He would say, "I can do that too," and I put the <laughs> cigarette in his mouth, and he did the thing while I sang uh, without moving his lips. No, we <laughs> that that type of thing that we did, and then with Danny and Farfel and myself, we did a song called Rag Mop. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very popular at the time, and it was a fast voice change. It was R A G G M O P P ragmop, and I would do R A G G M O P P R A G M O P and so forth and back and forth to to the orchestra behind us. It matter of fact, became kind of a signature thing for me a while, for a while, doing doing ragmop. Wow. How did you know you were doing well in the middle of a performance? Well, because uh, obviously you you know you're doing well when they're laughing at your stuff, <laughs> and, and that that that's basic. Uh, sometimes uh, I mentioned the Catskill Mountains were sometimes a tough crowd. Sometimes it would take you five minutes to get them going, but if they if you didn't get them in five minutes, uh, you were that was it. You better might just well say good night. <laughs> but uh, but once they warmed up and began to. Enjoy the characters, and of course that's what I tried for. I wanted them to enjoy Danny and Farkle, and not necessarily myself. Uh, you you would know by the laughter. Uh, applause uh, helps. I mean, there were several spots in the show where I expected to get applause, and if I did, uh, you know, aside from the laughter, if I got applause, then I figured, yeah, I'm doing well. That's mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. Did it have to be a quick change, artist? If you sense that you weren't doing particularly well with a, a single audience? Yes, yes. You always had you always had a backup. <laughs> if uh, if you were you were going down a road of, of material that wasn't uh, getting what you thought, uh, you had your backup. Uh, what uh, a ventriloquist has going for him is if they're not laughing at your material, if you can't amuse them, amaze them with <laughs> with your ventriloquism and. Uh, uh, that that helped me out many times when, uh, particularly a mediocre audience, 
Uh, they would applaud uh, for the rag mop, for instance. Uh -huh. They would applaud for the cigarette <laughs> bit, things like that. So that was pretty much my backup. Did you have any technique? I've read, for example, and Walden, maybe you can help me with this, Edgar Bergen um, had kind of a, a scouting mission before every show, and depending on how the audience responded to the warm-up, he would choose which dummy to come out with. Uh, Did you have any anything like that going for you? No, I don't uh no, and I didn't know that about uh, about Bergen either. Yeah, yeah, he would he would bring in his uh, epi a lot of the time to really bring the audience hot. Uh huh. And I was sort of say, especially during the mid fifties of radio days. That's because I have some of the warm ups in my collection, and that's really how it was. And I understand it's sort of a normal routine he would do to really bring them red hot. Uh huh. Well, I'll tell I'll tell you what uh, Jeff Dunham does. He has somebody go out into the audience before the show and uh, passes out cards, uh, asking him to fill in a question for Walter, the old man character that he has. And uh, then as the show goes on, somebody hands him these cards. And uh, it's strictly an ad-lib thing, and, and, and he's hilarious doing it. He reads the questions, and then this old man answers them uh, in almost always a hilarious manner. So that, uh, he does prepare that way. But no, I never uh, had anything like that in my act. Did you do anything that engaged the audience the way you've just described? Engage them as participants in the performance? Yes, I still do that. Uh, toward the end of uh, my performance, I asked for volunteers from the audience. Well, I already have them because I had somebody give me names. Uh, this is... A, a, in, in a show where uh, where I can do that, you can't do that in an auditorium. Uh -huh. But I get uh, uh, eight people out of the audience, four men and four ladies, and I do a bit where I touch them. When I touch them, they move their mouth, and uh, I, uh, each one becomes a note in the scale, do re mi fa, and so forth. And then we finally do the song, uh, do a deer, a female deer, and mm -hmm. each one has a. a, a, a a voice, and of course I give each one a different voice, and I'm, when I get to a, a lady, she winds up with a deep voice like this, you know. And uh, it, it, it's a routine that I've done for many years, and it goes very, it's, it, it's one of those surefire things, you say, that, that uh, always goes well, uh -huh. and uh, it, it does, it still works. Was that kind of engagement anything that you were able to build in when you were on the road or in front of particular audiences, for example, in a nightclub? You, you mean getting people out of the audience? Uh-huh. Yes, uh, yes, I, uh, that's where I started doing it. Uh, in, a, in a nightclub, you can pretty much uh, ask for volunteers, and uh, you can get them to, to come up just by pointing to somebody and pointing to this one. Uh, there were a few occasions where I had somebody uh, pick them out ahead of time. Uh, but uh, in, in, a, in a club or an auditorium, you pretty much have to ask for volunteers. Did you ever wind up with a bad experience as a result of pulling somebody out of an audience? Yes, I oh did. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, Good question, Patricia. <laughs> no, oh, well, of course, I've had people who are extrovert and, and try to steal the audience. I, I learned a long time ago, never hand them the mic. Oh. <laughs> Don't ever hand a volunteer a mic because you've <coughs> lost it. <laughs> They'll take over. No, the only real, real experience I remember, I was working in Detroit, a nightclub called The Rooster Tail, and uh, we were doing a matinee show. It was during the Easter week, and the, the kids were in. They brought the kids in, and uh, I got some uh, 
got to this one little boy, and he was very nervous. And when I finally got to him and made him start to talk, all of a sudden I looked down, and he had wet his pants Aww. on stage. And everybody could see the puddle. Oh, that poor <laughs> little we- guy. He, he was wearing shorts. <laughs> so the only thing I could think of was, uh, everybody, two steps forward, and <laughs> left him behind, and we finished the, uh, the routine. Oh, what it, a sweet thing to do for him. <laughs> well, you certainly didn't want to embarrass him any more than he was. So, yeah. Uh, what didn't didn't make a bit out of it. Just just ignored it. Yeah. What, yeah. What about celebrities, Jimmy? Remember the first one, the first time you ever did a a big a, a nightclub and there was a, somebody who was well known in the audience. Anything pops up to mind? Well, let me see. Um, I I'm, well, like I worked many places, particularly Las Vegas, where uh, there are always celebrities right. in the audience, and you you almost always uh, find out and, and you get them to stand up and take a bow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had uh, Judy Garland in in my audience uh, at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles uh, at the old Coconut Grove. And uh, I've had uh, Van Johnson, uh, who uh, came back to see me after the show, which was very nice, and uh, uh, numerous others. Uh, Milton Milton Berle's mother used to come to see me. (laughs) (laughs) And she would know, uh, send a note backstage before the show that she was in the audience because she always wanted to stand up and take a bow. And that was uh, Sandra, Sandra Burrell. She was a lovely uh, old older lady, but uh, she just had to have that uh, that recognition. And I would always introduce her, of course, uh, when, when she would come to my show more than once. <laughs> I would introduce her every time. So whenever there was a celebrity, you, you did try to... Uh, to introduce them from, sure. uh, from the stage. Uh, when you do a show, or you do a show, uh, do they start with headliners, and then, you know, uh, acts follow that? Were you ever a headliner? How does that work? Well, I, I worked up to it. I, I was a supporting act for a long time. Uh, uh, but uh, as time went by, and I got more uh, television exposure, uh, then I was able to, uh, to headline. I did at the uh, Copacabana in New York, at the uh, Flamingo in Las Vegas, at the uh, Shaperie in Chicago, uh, and uh, the Edgewater Beach uh, Hotel in Chicago also. So by, uh, that, those, those ones that I'm mentioning were when I had had an awful lot of uh, TV exposure and uh, they thought that I was enough of a draw to bring people in. But, but uh, other times before that period, I would uh, uh, support, I, I supported uh, uh, Peggy Lee, I supported uh, Harry Belafonte. Uh, I supported uh, Johnny Cash and uh, s- some other uh, country people uh, when I was doing uh, fairs. Let's see who else. Oh, uh, Eddie Arnold and uh, Tennessee Ernie. So these are people that I, I was the opening act for. Yeah. What kind of pressure did that put on performers who were, I'll put this in quotation marks, the warm up team? Well, uh, that's basically what what I was doing. Yes, of course, was doing the doing the warm up act. Uh, what kind of pressure came with that? Uh, were, were you under more pressure to perform well than uh, uh, in other circumstances? 
Well, yes, because you uh, you wanted to work uh, for this uh, person again, and if you were a good opening act for them, they would uh, use you a lot. Tennessee Ernie used me quite a bit, and so did uh, Eddie Arnold. But uh, they don't want you to do a lot of time. They want you to do a pleasant, I think they said to me, one of them, I forget who, uh, do a pleasant 20 minutes. In <laughs> other words, don't go out and kill the people and get a standing ovation, because then, then they're hard to follow. It, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> So when you do, when you're the headliner, you want you want to do great. You want that standing ovation. You want the whole thing. But when you're opening for somebody else, you just want to do a nice job and uh, then introduce the star. <laughs> so yes, a little bit of pressure there. That's a, that's a different kind of pressure. Yes, it is. It is. You you, you have uh, to do well, but not too well. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Wow. What, what happened? Did you ever go to England or Europe with your act? And with any time. When you're out in the United States, is it a different technique, a different audience? Well, yes and no. Uh, I, when I I worked I worked Europe, but when I worked Europe, I did all of the uh, Army and Air Force bases. Okay. So you've okay. got your American audience. Right. Uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, here again, you're working a hotel, and uh, it's a tourist trade. So uh, you you don't really have to. Uh, I think the only problem I ever had was in Quebec City. Up in Quebec, uh, they're all French-speaking up there. Uh-huh. I was touring with the Guy Lombardo Orchestra. I was uh, the featured act with them. And it's the first and only time I ever worked with an interpreter. Uh-oh. And <laughs> just Uh-oh. Do, do, you have to picture this. I'm, in, I'm center stage, <laughs> and he's over at stage left with his own mic. And I'm doing this for a French-speaking audience. I don't speak French. <laughs> doing, doing my act, I would do do a straight line and pause, and he would do repeat it. Then I would do the punch line and pause, and he would repeat. So naturally, I'm not getting any laughs. He's getting oh my gosh. all the laughs. And at halfway through my show, I said, I wonder if he's doing my act or whether he has an act of his own. <laughs> he's killing the people, and I, my stuff is not that funny. Oh. Yeah, that uh, that's one and only time I really had a, a very strange experience. Yeah. Wow. I I have to admit that's pretty strange. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very. It was it was only for one show. We were just doing a one night stand there. <laughs> oh, thank goodness! Yeah. I mean, can you imagine having to do an entire week of that? Yeah, I don't think I could have handled that. Wow, Farfel, what was your most ex- uh, memorable experience? Most memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good, bad, indifferent. Either uh, way. Any, anyway, uh, I, th- I think the most flattering thing that ever happened to me was I was to open at the Mapes Hotel in Reno, and uh, on the plane I was getting stomach cramps. Anyway, the, the, the story is I, I went right to the hospital and I was having an appendix uh, oh, wow. thing. Uh, so, uh, of course, the called me uh, from the hotel and said, well, can't you come in and at least do the first show? <laughs> I said, I'm having an appendix operation here. I don't think I can make it. So they, the reason I'm telling the story is because the gentleman who came in, who flew in to replace me, was Edgar Bergen. Oh. And that was the most flattering thing that ever happened to me, just to say that I got replaced by Bergen. And he came out to the hospital and visited me while uh, he was there. Oh, there. wow. But he finished out my engagement for me, and uh, I was just so nice. What do ventriloquists talk about when they get together? 
dummies. Ventriloquist. Uh, I think probably you know uh, we have a convention once a year. Uh, uh-huh. A, a place called uh, the, the Bent Haven Museum. It's the world's only ventriloquist uh, uh, dummy ventriloquism uh, uh, museum. They have all these old dummies and so forth. Anyway, we have a convention each year, and uh, a bunch of us get together and we chat. And mostly it's about uh, you know where did where did you who made the figure for you and uh, have you had any trouble with it and the material. We we talk shop just like uh, any other convention, except about two. 2.30 in the morning when you find ventriloquists walking the hall with their figures <laughs> and singing and <laughs> telling dirty jokes, and uh, it, it gets a little raucous. Uh, uh, oh, that's funny. Do you ever practice routines with each other? Well, when I say practice, I mean, do you, do you try out um, new jokes or um, a, a change in your techniques? Do you try that out on each other? Yes, we do. As a matter of fact, uh, when uh, Jeff Dunham comes to the show, he, he almost always has a new routine that he wants to try out, and uh, and he does it for us. And uh, they, we, we do have uh, uh, seminars and things where, where we discuss material and that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a working uh, convention. Ventriloquists, ventriloquists are not jealous of one another, generally speaking. Uh, we generally like to help each other out and... Uh, that's a good thing. That's really interesting. There, there's no sense of pro, uh, a, a proprietary interest in what you're doing. You're willing to share or not not be concerned that somebody's going to lift some of your best material? Well, that's happened, of course. But, uh, no, that's not a concern. And uh, The concern is that we're trying very hard to keep ventriloquism alive. You know, so, for so many years, people thought ventriloquism was dead, especially when we lost Ed Sullivan. There were no variety shows uh, where we could perform. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of the convention <coughs> is to uh, to keep it alive. We, we encourage the young people who come to the convention, they usually come with their parents, and we encourage them to uh, keep it going. How did you get on Ed's show? Was there a story behind that? Behind what? Uh, getting on to Ed's show, Ed Sullivan's show. Oh, uh, how I, how I how, got... How to, you did that, yeah. Yeah, uh, here again it was my, my, my Chicago agent uh, who... Uh, had had an in with the with the booker of the uh, the show. Ed Sullivan uh, hardly ever booked anybody without seeing them first. Uh, in in my case, uh, the agent called uh, Sullivan's uh, booking agent and uh, said uh, he he had seen me and I should uh, do this. And so it was it was, it was a long distance booking uh, out of Chicago. And uh, the, the the first show I did for him, uh, he he re- he really liked it and he had me back. Uh, the very next month uh, for another appearance. So I made about a dozen appearances on his show over the wow. years. Wow. Yeah. What did that do for you in terms of your career? Well, it, it was a career maker. Uh, once, once you uh, did that Sullivan show, uh, you, you're not just seen by all these millions of people, but by hundreds of agents and bookers, and uh, the booking, booking started coming in. Uh, instead of... Uh, uh, scrounging around, uh, mm-hmm. my agent was able to just answer the phone. Wow, like baseball scouts. Uh, well, it was that type of thing. During the ra- when you were doing the radio show, Jimmy, for ABC and some of the commercials, did you move your lips? <laughs> <laughs> I I have to admit, I took a clue from Edgar. That's what I thought. 
<laughs> Actually, I had no studio audience to, to see me. That's right. Just just the orchestra that was there. So, uh, yeah, I, I have to admit that <laughs> I did. I, That's I'll, tell, funny. I'll tell you, I tried. No, I tell you, I tried. You did, you really? I I, re- I tried to hold the lips still, but when it came to something uh, a difficult word that I could get away with in a personal appearance, but not on radio, I I'd let them go. <laughs> the, the M's, the B's, the P's. And the W's, I had to move them for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so when you got in front of a live audience, they say, "You didn't sound like that on the radio." <laughs> well, I never had anybody say that to my face, but uh, <laughs> they might—they might have thought that. Yes. <laughs> That's cute, Jimmy. You told me a line one time about how Danny reacted when you first introduced Farfel to him. Danny, what did you say? I said, "Are you kidding? A dog in the act?" Come on. We got enough reviewers that call the act a dog to begin with. <laughs> but I didn't believe that. And Farfel. Yeah, yeah. You okay was, with that? I was good. I was good for the act. I, I take a lot of abuse from Danny, you know. But uh, listen, who's, who's the star, really? Who is the star? Silence. <laughs> I know silence is not the star. <laughs> you know, I, I asked you about that one time, Jimmy, about having worked so hard with Danny O'Day and creating a presence for yourself and working into successful venues. And suddenly, I say suddenly, you've, you've introduced a second figure into the act, and it's almost instant-like from the audience. Did that create any kind of conflict for you, or was it? Uh, how, how did that work for you? Do you know how embarrassing it is for a secondary figure to get all the applause? <laughs> that bad, huh? Oh, poor Danny. No, he's he suffered. So uh, uh, you know, was was Farfel, it a difficult thing? Farfel doesn't. Well, Farfel still uh, can get laughs on straight lines. I don't have to do too many uh, uh, jokes with him. He can just, uh, Danny can give him a disparaging remark, and he just slowly lowers his head, and people go, oh, and uh, Danny doesn't like that. What about fan letters? Did Farfel get some, and, and does, did Danny O'Day get some? I mean, uh, do they get separate fan letters? Well, we did get a lot of fan mail when we were on television regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I think I can happily say most of it was addressed to me. Okay. <laughs> But we did, we did get a few uh, of Danny, and sometimes people get mixed up and they call me Danny. And uh, really, uh, that well, I don't know. They they don't get around. And and Farfel is is another one. We get all kinds of things. Uh, people don't hear Farfel. They call him Farkle, <laughs> or they call him Farfu, or Sparkle. I've had a lot of that. How, oh, how's, how's, your, how's your little dog Sparkle? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't correct him. I say, he's just fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess you have to. Jimmy, I picked out a couple of things. I went to the um, Vent site, the Ventriloquist site uh, for the museum. Oh, yes. And there's an, an entire list of ventriloquists with uh, photographs and occasionally some little blurbs about 
who they are and where they performed, and uh, many of them are not with us any longer. So I downloaded all of this stuff, and I counted, this is approximate, uh, about 125 ventriloquists are up there on the site in this list. Uh And it's international representation. There are some from England. There's one from Canada. Somebody's from Australia. So this is not exclusively American ventriloquists. No, it's not. And uh, we have... uh one that comes to the convention from India every year. We have two of them that come from uh, Japan. Uh, they come from all over, uh, you say Germany, England. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. All right. So, so this this list is international representation. So I've got about 125 people up there, and I'm marking all of these off. Tick, 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 tick. I counted 17 ventriloquists. Now I had to go through a whole list. It might be 16. It might be 18. But 17 ventriloquists who are using non-human figures, and you're one of them, with the dog. Uh Um, About half of them are birds. There's a monkey, um, a toucan, but but almost every single person has a human-like figure to work with. Uh So what you're saying is that most of them are human-like, and very few of them are Yes. Animals. Uh-huh. So, uh, very few of the and very few ventriloquists are uh, now 17 out of 125 ventriloquists who have critters to uh-huh. work with. I, I mean, that's an insulting term, but something other than a Danny O'Day type mm-hmm. figure. How come? Well, I think that uh, the the uh, the perception of the ventriloquist is the little boy sitting on your knee. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that's what people think of, and I think when somebody starts out doing ventriloquism, most of them just go ahead and do that. I, I, I know I did. That's uh, what I thought was the, the way it should be. So once you do that and you, you have perfected this character, I think you pretty much stay with it. Uh, uh, yes, I've seen a lot of them work with uh, with figures. As you, uh, uh, like you say, birds. There's a bird. Uh, uh, Jay Johnson does a very funny monkey uh, mm-hmm. routine. Uh, so they're they're out there. I guess it just uh, is it any more difficult to work with an animal figure than with a human type figure? Well, yes, it's it's much more difficult to get a a character for them. Uh, you know, the the very fact that they're an animal uh, means that people don't know what an animal should sound like unless he barks or unless they meow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to try and and perfect a character is very very difficult. Uh, the ones that uh, Farfel was uh, was not too difficult because uh, I gave him that that bastard hound sound, the, 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 the you know hang dog look. Yeah, his voice and his uh, appearance match. Yes, well that's it. Now it's very difficult to make a voice for a bird, let's say, uh, or for uh, yeah. I think it's a very very interesting point, and I haven't thought about it, but I think that's probably basic uh, the basic reason you're trying to create some something believable mm-hmm. and it's it's difficult to believe to believe a talking animal that's really interesting so you took the hard road yeah <laughs> well <laughs> for some reason or other the ex- the audience seemed to accept farfel right away i didn't uh, didn't feel that i had that problem oh he's so acceptable and his ears roll up i just could not believe that when you did that for me his ears go up <laughs> that's right well, I, it, I only do it once in the, in the entire act, and, and Danny says to him, you look ashamed, look ashamed, and, <laughs> and his two ears go up. That's so, good. So then, then we follow it through, and, uh, and, and uh, I say to him, okay, drop, drop the ears, and he doesn't do it. And I say, the farvel drop the ears, and, 
And I say, I say to Danny, why, why won't he drop the ears? And Danny says, says uh, let go of the strings. And the ears go down. Now, for some reason or other, audiences find that funny, that, that Danny is telling me to let go of the strings. And uh, that's, it, it becomes a little bit. The more you do things like that, the more you, you polish it until uh -huh. it, uh, it becomes a, a brand new bit. Well, that really is funny when the dummy is telling the ventriloquist what to do. Yeah, that's true. That is true. There, there are just a couple of other things about ventriloquism, and then I want you to talk about what you are involved in in terms of promoting ventriloquism. We touched on that uh, just a couple of minutes ago. But out of, I'm back to the numbers again. They're just staggering. Out of 125 ventriloquists, and many of these are no longer with us, as I said, I counted seven women. Oh, yes. Why is it um, predominantly a man's profession? You know, I can't answer that um, because a lot of uh, uh, ladies, uh, young girls and uh, even older ladies, come to the convention and uh, do ventriloquism, but you, you don't hear of them because most of them are not professionals. Uh, but we do have a, a lady by the name of Lynn Tresker, T-R-E-F-G-E-R, who is on this album, uh, I'm No Dummy. Mm -hmm. uh, she is on that. And uh, uh, Sherry Lewis's uh, uh, daughter, Mallory Lewis, is on the, the uh, album also. Uh, she has picked up uh, Lamb Shop and has continued, because uh, you know Sherry has passed away. Sherry passed away, right. And Sherry is one of the seven women on the list I'm, I'm talking about. No, there are very, there are very few professionals. I, I have to uh, have to admit that. Where did it came from? Did it came from um, England, Europe? Where where did the history and were there some major stars before Edgar Bergen? Yes, of course. Uh, uh, ventriloquism was a big act in vaudeville days. Uh, there was a ventriloquist called the Great Lester, and the Great Lester was a big star on the vaudeville stage uh, in the in the twenties or even in the late teens. Uh, so uh, there have been uh, been other stars. Other in England, uh, there was a fellow named Arthur Prince, who was a very big uh, star on the music halls in uh, in England. And of course, the senior Winces, originally from Spain, uh, was uh, yeah, you know very big. But uh, there, uh, you know, the, the, the ventriloquism art itself goes way way back. Uh, some of the they, they claim, and I've read this, that some of the uh, in the mediev medieval days, uh, in these castles with tapestries on the wall, mm -hmm. uh, some of these land barons would invite people over, and they reach and pull little strings behind the tapestries, and mouths would move, and that's how they would entertain their their guests. Uh, one of the earliest forms uh, on record of ventriloquism. They even claimed that some of the uh, witches that were burned at the stake were actually ventriloquists. Oh, my gosh. Who, who made voices come out of people, and uh, they didn't like that. That could be why there are so few women in it. That may be. <laughs> they, <laughs> they all got burned at the stake. <laughs> oh, well, dear. So they don't burn the dummy. Yeah, right. Oh, right. Yeah. Don't burn the dummy. Um, Jimmy, one other thing that I picked up over time, and this was not just because I did some of my homework here, but so many of you work with multiple figures. And you've got Danny and Farfel who are regulars, and you had two others yeah. um, who were part of your routine. Uh, Paul Winchell had uh, Jerry Mahoney and Knucklehead Smith. Edgar yeah. Bergen had three. Um, 
Why? Why are you working with multiple personalities? Uh, just uh, as, as you work, the act expands. You, you want to put in something new. Uh, and when you, you figure you're only working with the one figure, well, if one is good, two should be better, and uh, maybe three would be better than that. You know? <laughs> uh, like I said, some of them work, some of them don't. But uh, it's just uh, just expanding the act. You just don't want to do, do the same thing all the time. So most the reason most people uh, use a second or a third is because they want to try something new, give their audience something new. And then a follow-up, I know in the early days, Edgar Bergen basically had three acts. That's all he had for radio. When Rudy Valley went through all of them, he was in a panic. What about you, Jimmy? Did you have one basic act when you were 16 years old? And when did you start to develop, you know, right. two or three different acts that you could take on the road with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mo- most people uh, do have one, and especially uh, if you if you work a lot and, and the act is, is really polished and their timing is good, uh, you, you hate to get rid of it, you know, you hate to uh, keep it, uh, you, to, you don't like to change, but you have to, especially when you work nightclubs, you would do uh, a dinner show and a, and a late show, and sometimes the same audience would stay and be there for the second show, so you're not going to give them the same thing. So uh, uh, out of necessity, you, uh, you you put together a second act. And uh, I really had basically two, uh, but I, I was able to ad-lib a lot uh, and make them a little different, even if you had the same audience. Mm. What was the process you went through to create an act? The process? Mm. Well, just, well, first of all, you, you, you have to know your character. You know, you know how uh, when, when Betty, my wife, and I work on material, uh, together, uh, she'll say, well, well, Danny wouldn't say that. You know, we, we know the character well. Uh-huh. Uh, Farfel should say that. And 